Bonjour. How's everybody doing tonight? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're starting like a comedy stand-up set. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay. Good. How are you guys? I'm doing well. I'm laying in my really white bed. It's giving Sofia Coppola, which mm. is um on theme for today's episode. Very true. Today's episode is on the topic of frou-frou, which we discovered spans centuries and vibes. It does. We we were kind of, we discussed black tie frou-frou a bit in our Fashion Week episode with Vika. And I think this has been kind of a trend that's been happening for a few years now, the sort of 80s Laura Ashley type thing, big pilgrim collars and ruffles, just hyper feminine, almost coquette styles that have been trending for the past few years. And frou-frou is a very apt description for them, in my opinion. And then when we looked into the history of it, we discovered that this has kind of gone through three separate eras, which we're going to go through chronologically. The first would be a 19th century Edwardian frou-frou coming out of the Belle Epoque in France. The second era would be in the 1980s, probably the most recognizable iteration of frou-frou with romantic style and new romantic style. And the third era would be now, which we will get to at the end of this episode. Yeah, I'm really excited for this because I guess we focus a lot more on like feminine styles, but this is the feminine maximalism that seems to be really of interest to us and to our listeners. And it's less of like an aesthetic that you would like look up on Pinterest and it's less commodifiable, but it's more just in the ether and kind of always observable in one way or another. To me, it's almost like the antithesis of old Hollywood glamour, if that makes sense. Like, it's so not body conscious and it's so... Like, there's something about it that's, like, not glam, but it is definitely (laughs) frou-frou. It feels like the clothing equivalent, almost, of the concept of birthday makeup. (laughs) And that I don't don't think men like it. Yeah, I don't think men like it either. This is true. And and criticisms have been leveled against it since its inception in the 1890s and kind of the Edwardian era. People hated it. They thought it was crass and vulgar. In the 80s, similar criticisms were leveled against it. In the modern day, uh, I, I don't see that many critics of it, but I'm sure they exist just because I think hyper-feminine aesthetics often induce visceral reactions amongst people. Yeah, I think the thing about this is that historically... It's been not only a hyper-feminine aesthetic, but it's an aesthetic that takes up a lot of physical space. Mm -hmm. Uh, Going back to the crinolines and hoop skirts of the mid-1800s, I think that definitely carries through today. Like, if you saw a girl wearing an imitation style of the material girl giant bow dress from the 80s, slash from Gentleman's Preferred, Gentlemen prefer blonde. Gentlemen's prefer blonde. Gentlemen prefer <laughs> blondes. It's it's it takes up space. Like like the Laura Ashley dresses, princess. I'm not trying to be that type of woman. That's like men don't like when women take up space. But <laughs> what do you guys think about that point? I mean, I think even the word frou frou is used as almost a derogatory term to des- describe something really fussy and. You know, there's, it's interchangeably used with shishi, fufu, chichi. I think everyone knows kind of 
or has an idea of what we're talking about. And I'm not sure if it's necessarily taking up space. I think it's something more about the hyper femininity of it. It is partially taking up space, but a lot of the haters of Fru-Fru in the 80s were women who were power dressers. They felt like Mm. Fru-Fru styles kind of made people take them less seriously in the workplace. It was unfeminist. Yeah, it definitely is infantilizing. And also, yeah, the space thing is really interesting to me, but also the level of embellishment. I think the history of fashion in the 20th century When you think of how things started from like Charles Frederick Worth to the 90s, it does seem to be like a tapering down, like a Mm -hmm. minimalism and a body consciousness. And I think Fru-Fru goes against that. It's very (laughs) anti-minimalism. Yeah. Let's take a look at the origins of the word Fru-Fru. So it's said to really have come into popular language around 1870. And it means, they say... A rustling in French. And to that extent, people think that it came into popular language to talk about how these women that were wearing extravagant silk gowns that had many layers of crinoline and petticoats underneath them would make a certain rustling sound via their fabric swishing together when they walked through a room, which I think that is actually a really beautiful origin story for a word. Yeah, onomatopoeia. And it was then popularized in English by a French play that debuted in 1869. And then it started to take a more colloquial sense to me in like the fussy details of a woman's dress or of her personality or of really who she is as a person, I think. I think it's interesting because probably the most prominent picture that we all hold in our heads of Fru-Fru in the Edwardian era or in the Belle Epoque in Paris is the can-can dancer at the Moulin Rouge, which is where the play Fru-Fru, which is what kind of popularized that word, um, was playing quite often. And also there was like a magazine titled Fru-Fru that parodied the bohemian can-can dress of of women who lived in Montmartre, the Montmartre neighborhood of Paris. I think also... It's important to note that the origins of the concept of frou-frou date back like pretty early in the 19th century. So even when we talk about like examples, like common day examples referencing the Edwardian period, it definitely has origins from kind of like the late mid-century, which we'll get into exactly why that is in terms of the state of the clothing industry at the time. I want to share what I learned about the play Fru-Fru that the word originates from. Please, go ahead. So basically, I discovered that the plot really, it's really like a Fru-Fru misogyny parable about (laughs) like women's vanity, which just seems so interesting because it obviously still has the same meaning today. But basically, it centers around a shy and dignified diplomat who's in love with this French woman named Gilberta. And she's very beautiful, but very self-absorbed and is therefore the frou-frou of the title of the play. And so this woman, Gilberta's sister, actually likes this guy, but she's like very selfless and plays the matchmaker. So Gilberta and this guy get married, have a kid, and then she runs away with another guy. Her sister, her kind of like virtuous, humble sister, is then left to raise the child and kind of shocks up with her sis- sister's husband. And the play ends with this woman, Gilberta, who is the frou-frou personality, dying penniless 
and alone oh. and literally babbling about babbling incoherently about roses and ball gowns like that is so for that really does cut deep yeah looking mm-hmm. at i'm looking at all of the covers of this magazine the frou and it's all of these women sitting on those that look like a pile of whipped cream mm-hmm. and i do like that yeah there are a lot of tales about vanity and frivolity and women kind of spiraling out kind of gives streetcar name desire yeah yeah so it's giving hag yeah it's giving old hag like a hag like a bitty. A <laughs> yeah psycho bitty yeah no and it is um the frou-frou magazine was a satirical magazine so this this style and and just demeanor just had haters from its inception which is crazy well if i could so I was researching the fashion of the 1860s and the decade prior because this play Frou-Frou came out in 1869 in Paris. So I wanted to see exactly how women were dressing and what was happening in the dressmaking industry at the time. And so the there's a lot of really big changes at this time in the 19th century. I would say the biggest one is like the emergence of the sewing machine and ready to wear which really got me thinking because I think like this is really what frou-frou is about because when you think of the word frou-frou there's like a certain cheapness or childishness or like immaturity vanity about it but it really is because of the advancements in technology and clothing making at the time like for the first time really people outside of the upper class women especially could really like frou-frou up their outfits and add lots of decoration and flair to their clothes, which funnily enough was because the use of the sewing machine really grew at this time after the Civil War because there was a huge demand for ready-to-wear military uniforms. And by the 1860s, there were sewing machines that were specifically marketed towards women in domestic situations. So it just gave people a lot more room to embellish their own clothing And I think that is where this idea of kind of cheapness or frivolity really comes from in the origins of the word, because this was happening at the exact same time that like critique of frou-frou women was happening in literally in the media, like in magazines and in in that play. That's an interesting point. I was was reading about the introduction of ready-to-wear and tailor-made clothing and that one of the quotes that was introducing the passage was one by H.G. Wells who commenting on this new style of dress said what an assortment of pretentious and ill-made toilettes what disclosures of clumsy hooks and eyes and general crass carelessness it would not do for me to behold the library public in the mass too often he he really hated it Um, Mm -hmm. and I think you know it allowed people a lot more freedom because they didn't just have like two or three outfits like middle and working class people didn't just have like two or three outfits to wear for their entire lives you know what i mean the sloppily put together diy thing is essential to frou-frou which has its own charm in my opinion um yeah uh, it reminds me a bit of the evil stepsisters in cinderella who are like trying to flex when they go to the ball and put on like really ridiculous outfits. Yeah. I feel like that was definitely like a frou-frou commentary. Yeah, having like a giant feather and mm-hmm. yeah, those girls were really hated on unjustly. But yeah, it's that like level of frivolity and childlikeness and wanting to participate in social life but not really having the um the lady likeness to mm-hmm. <laughs> just shut up, I guess. 
Um, I guess also what's interesting to me about this era, and you guys have written a little bit about this here, is like the relationship to live performance. And this was like a big Belle Epoque thing. Like the movie Moulin Rouge is a good example of this. It's set in 1900 in Paris and it's about kind of the Bohemian movement. Just for context, everyone, the Belle Epoque is kind of the last 20 to 30 years of the the 19th century up into the outbreak of World War One. Yeah, there was a huge influx of, or just increase in in wealth in France, there was a period of economic prosperity, and this was especially true in the upper classes. And this allowed a, a lot of new fashions to flourish, and kind of created this these sorts of like large archetypes, this like Gibson girl type thing. And I think that probably did a, facilitate a lot of bohemian lifestyles, right? Because in periods of economic prosperity, leisure time is way more prevalent and accessible. I love the can-can vibe, so that, to me that's very classic. Especially the contrast between like having a lot of fabric and being sexy. I think the allegedly uh, it was considered scandalous because the women were wearing these like open crotch pantalettes underneath the skirts, so like the idea of going to see these like women that are kicking and like you're getting like a glimpse of their pussy for like two seconds is really funny <laughs> to me. Um, yeah, that's I mean, is that not the essence of frou-frou, though, which is, like, getting is. sexually aroused by hearing the swish of a woman's layers and layers of silk fabric? This is true. It is kind mm. of like burying yourself in a giant bushel of flowers or something. <laughs> that gives unboxing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize how crass, like, the Moulin Rouge was. Like, I knew it was obviously, like, courtesans, prostitutes, sex workers, you know, that staffed the Moulin Rouge and it was this very kind of equivalent to a strip club, I guess. But I was looking into some of the performances that were very famous during the Belle Epoque and they had like a resident flatulist, like a person that was like professionally farting on stage. (laughs) And that was just part of the act there. It was just total like um, vulgar and kind of off color humor, which I think is really interesting because I associate the Moulin Rouge just unwashed like with some sort of glamour and elegance but this is this is really reminding me of Degas the artist because I think when we look at his paintings of ballerinas and dancers from our modern eye we're like wow the beautiful ballerina is dancing on stage but then when you take like one basic art history class it's like yeah he actually thought they were like massive sluts and like he I don't know you know what I mean like the that other side of the entertainment biz at this time is definitely part of it yeah I love that overlap between entertainment and like borderline sex work yeah the other thing is um the Zigfield Follies I got kind of obsessed with recently Um, It was like a theatrical review that was on Broadway, but it was like just really cute girls, but a lot of them kind of had to come up because they would um, get famous or get the attention of these guys, like Josephine Baker was one for a bit, and lots of like top entertainment tableau vivant vibes. It kind of gives circus as well. (laughs) Yeah. Have you guys seen the really famous painting of the Moulin Rouge by the artist Henri de Toulouse. Toulouse yeah, that's like, I feel slayer. like he's such a slayer. And like, I don't know, just the garishness of the makeup. Her face is like, like glowing in the, the gaslight, the green gaslight of the Moulin Rouge. I don't know. There's yeah, there's so much about like the death of like a woman's sexual prime in, in this for me. I love the Art Nouveau style and how it kind of 
depicts this era just like the curvilinear movements of women's legs and just the amount of movement in like all of the paintings yeah that s-shaped silhouette of this era is so interesting because it really gives like body modification extremism you know this like because this is really where the corset in my head takes on this whole other like shape you know it's it's because it's a because the bulbousness of the fabric that you're wearing being cinched in the center at such a small degree i mean it's just insane you know it's like that crazy strong yeah yeah i guess it's also kind of cool that a lot of the art of this era or vibe was just like posters it's kind of ephemera not really to star trek was a painter but you're seeing kind of the rise of graphic design here as well why do I feel like I'm giving NPR today? Like, why am I talking like this? <laughs> I think you sound good. Isn't I think you cool? too. You sound relaxing. And it's oh. also kind of helping me process things uh, a bit more because it's, like, very ASMR-y. Yeah. Uh, I think I, like, watched a TikTok about a girl making fun of, like, public radio. And it's, um... This is I love public, public radio. radio. This is basically the public radio. Yeah. Uh, shout out to KOP in Austin Co-op Radio. It's like my favorite radio station. Shout yeah, out to the, the, the Clemson University College Radio. Can I oh get a God. hell yeah, Alexi? WUSE old. Oh. <laughs> uh, with with the art, like what you're describing, Alexi, is kind of like modern, like the, the earliest form of graphic design. I was looking at the history of the frou-frou newspaper right which was also very crass it would advertise things like how to prevent sexually transmitted diseases it was you know very much like kind of the shock magazine and um, it was known for these like iconic poster designs of Leonardo Capiello who is called the father of modern advertising I think this this era of like poster Mm. design really kind of heralded a new type of consumer advertising culture which I think is interesting because I associate this style with consumerism really heavily right even in the 80s their consumerism is kind of behind why this was such a popular style I mean just like consumerism seems to be behind most 80s trends but but yeah I just think that's interesting this like overlap of this new form of media and it being so loud and abrasive is, is very interesting um well I was also thinking about the same thing. And what I found so interesting is how the rise of frou-frou also really coincided with like the rise of the nouveau riche. So that would be kind of people not historically from the 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 upper class who made a ton of money in being successful industrialists. And I saw I thought that also probably put a, a different spin on how people saw this as well as a style that i mean like alexi said earlier it's like you don't know how to be a lady like you're wearing all of kind of the the ladylike fineries but at your core you're still you don't belong in it you know what's interesting about that too is that the guild you know that that's kind of what i associate with like the gilded age as well right which is a little different from the Belle Epoque but took place around the same time um this sort of garishness which now we think of as so elegant right you go to New York City and you see these like gilded age buildings and you're just in art and you're just like wow like what elegance but I was actually on TikTok like a couple months ago <laughs> and apparently the 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 Vanderbilt's family were were considered extremely tacky during yeah. the Gilded Age era because they were so nouveau rich. They were not part of the aristocracy. You know, they were kind of industrialists. They made their way on their own. I mean, the the Commodore 
the original Vanderbilt who made money is from Staten Island and initially made his money by making a little shipping service from Staten Island. And yeah, they really they really fought for their title in New York society for like years and years. The woman who was considered the maven of society was who was it? I can't forget. I can't remember. Like, I I want to say Caroline Waldorf, but that is not it. Um, <laughs> I also know that the Vanderbilt Gen One, Gen Two, they built this like massive faux French chateau house in Manhattan. Yes, which I think speaks to that pretty well. Yes, that was that was the, what that TikTok was discussing was how angry people in the, that neighborhood were at this house that was so, um, you know, people liked this sort of conformity and 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 um, classiness, quote unquote, of like the aristocracy, the established old aristocracy, and them coming in kind of guns blazing with these like gaudy designs and extravagant parties and stuff that was just that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And interestingly enough, you know, Fru-Fru in the 80s was around the time when there was kind of a nouveau rich vibe as well. I think this just sort of in decadent periods, like fashion starts to reflect like the, the culture, like the decadent, garish, nouveau rich, um, unclassy type thing. You know, it's interesting to see fashion reflect it. Um, yeah. And I, I guess like there's some interesting kind of quotes from this time period. So the woman who snubbed Alva Vanderbilt, who was the matron of the Vanderbilt family, said after she put on this really, really famous ball at her chateau. She said, we have no right to exclude those whom this great country has brought forward. The time has come for the Vanderbilts. <laughs> so dramatic. <laughs> Anyways, sorry, that was a bit a bit of a no, lovely. tangent, y'all. I think there's quite a bit of quotation in this um, episode. So um, we're practicing our dramatic readings of things. There's a couple other technological advancement advancements at the time that um made the, the the fashions women's fashion seem so frou-frou the first was the rise of cheap synthetic dyes for the first time which made kind of these very vivid vivid garish colors really popular that seems very moulin rouge to me when we were just talking about the way that painters at the time literally mixed oil paints to depict the moulin rouge it's like all the women's skin has like a green tint to it or something um. the next thing is the rise of the crinlin hoop skirt which once again was made possible by the efficiencies of the sewing machine and it made the width of the of the woman's skirt bigger than it had ever been before so like in 1860 a hoop skirt could make a dress measure out to like 12 to 15 feet in the circumference so i just wanted to include a couple more examples of how technological advancement advancements at this time made women's dress just seem more more frou-frou in some ways than I had ever seen before. That's really interesting. The, the, the colorfulness, I, I wish I could really have been there. I'm like, I wish I was at the Milan Rouge. It, it, it really been a sight to see. That's like so, like, I just love, like, like vulgar rich vibes, you know? Mm, That's like yeah. one of my favorite vibes. The style of party maximalism is definitely back in. Have I already talked to you guys about the movie Babylon? I mean, you have to see it. It's like one of those movies that has these epic unhinged party scenes, a la The Great Gatsby and a la Wolf of Wall Street as well. I haven't I haven't seen Babylon yet. I, I was wanting to, but I heard I heard like mixed reviews about it. Um yeah, it's not very yeah. good, but it's, it's not good. 
I mean, I loved it, but like, I also have really bad taste in movies. It's also like four hours long. Really? Yeah. That's really very, long. I don't know. I feel like people would spend all night at the Moulin Rouge, just taking in the sights four yeah. hours. What's it's it to And it's, it's shot in the way, like the opening scene is just like this really unhinged party scene that's shot in one take, or it's supposed to seem like that, where it's just like, POV you're like going through this party all of the different rooms you walk in on people fucking like people snorting a mountain of coke an elephant comes in and there's like this, some jazz performance and old Hollywood Project X yeah P- old, literally old Hollywood Project X like the Project X of every time I think people are I mean not to be like indie sleaze revival but people are really craving unhinged party yeah times. that's true um, but I'll get into that in my in our contemporary section I guess there, yeah, there can be something quite dirty about certain contemporary iterations of Rupert, or even the idea of like a hot '80s babe, you know, wearing a a taffeta gown, like doing mounds of coke. So, <laughs> shall we continue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to cultivate the crazy party vibe this week. That it's it's South by Southwest in Austin. It seems pretty fun. Um, it seems a little chaotic, but I'm trying to cultivate that. Um. This is my project X, so yeah. Um, I mean, I just saw something about it was like the MTV Spring Breaks, and I there was a lot of discourse about um people were like, wow, like we should do like another. Like, is it even possible to have like a giant party like this anymore with like a bajillion performers and all this stuff? And everyone's just like, no, because you guys like to record people that are just like trying to have a good time. So, so true. That's also the vibe of like um substackers and scene reporters. Like every party in New York that has the potential to be like really great, there are also like half the people there are distancing themselves for like wanting to write a scene report. Mm. So me at the heavens door yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I was like I was like photo bombing everyone's like selfies wearing like a hideous Princeton zip up gray hoodie. <laughs> No, they probably will take that from you and try to sell it. I know. Take it off my body. The hoodie. Um, yeah, <laughs> Alright, let's uh, move into... This is kind of a really big topic. Fru-fru in the 80s. It's got a lot of moving parts. And I think a lot of people associate it with romantic style. Like, new romantic style. The sort of Princess Diana type. More conservative romantic style. And what's interesting about this, there have always been trends, of course, right? But something about romantic style new romantic style it seems like kind of the first of its kind is a sort of like nostalgia based avant-garde trend popularized by global digital media and just to kind of tell the story about it i I kind of want to start in the late 70s and early 80s and weirdly enough the late 70s and the early 80s it was not as garish as a lot of people like to associate the 80s with it was very minimalistic very formal i'd like to quote john duca of the new york times who wrote an article reporting about the fashion of 1982 in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said the Reagan influence wafted through the major cities like heavy perfume where the young had once been the apple of the fashion. eye, the elders took over wearing expensive suits and ball gowns and the youth followed the example in its way. Nothing said more about fashion than all those 15 year olds in wing colors and black ties swimming like well-bred minnows in the wake of stately taffeta. Beautiful writing. Gorgeous. Uh, R.I.P. John Duca, who I wasn't familiar with him, but apparently he was a very witty fashion writer in the 80s who lo- sadly lost his life to AIDS. Um, oh. Yeah, but he's someone I'd love to look into more. But what 
something weird that happened whenever Thatcherism and Reaganism took hold in the United States and the UK, which is in the early 80s, the youth no longer was like setting the fashion trends, which I think is super rare. That that doesn't tend to happen often. Well, yeah, because that's, you know, that's interesting because we've obviously been talking about Gen X and Gen X media a lot in some recent episodes, but in American Psycho, Patrick Bateman, who's like 26, his ultimate icon is Donald Trump. Yeah. Who I don't think was 26 then. No, he wasn't. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know what, what, how old was Donald Trump in like the mid 80s? What do you guys think? 40? Yeah, I was gonna say 40 something. Yeah, you're probably right. He's probably in his 40s. Yeah, he was. And he was he was in his 40s, yeah. Reminds me of Patrick Bateman's girlfriend in um American Psycho, who's played by Reese Witherspoon. She's very roo and she's kind of like constantly being written off by him as like pretty thoughtless party girl who just wants to like look cute. And very empty, he thinks. Yeah. Yeah, and she has this sort of over the top, like that sort of social like dynamic of like like social climbing vibes of like the that does give very like gilded age a little bit. Like when they're sitting in the restaurant and he's about to like break off the engagement. Like she's just saying hi to everybody, like sitting around, you know. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the film The Age of Innocence. Have you guys seen that? Such a good the, yeah. Is it the Martin Scorsese one? Yes. And yeah. how Winona Ryder plays like the belle of society and she's very frou-frou, always has like a flower in her hair or something. But her lover is like, uh, she's so dumb and thoughtless. Yeah, we have so many. This is such a trope in, in movies and um literature, right? There's like the smart kind of bookish um sex demon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah. like literally is the character of um michelle pfeiffer in the age of innocence she's yeah. like an older woman who was sexual progress and deep thoughts yeah oh i love that that's, gonna, sure. that's so gonna be me <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like because i was interested in margaret thatcher and thatcher as a right and since mm. i'm not from the uk i didn't want to get anything wrong and this is probably like obvious to a lot of uk listeners to me it was kind of new because i was i was not familiar with the discourse of the Thatcher era, but something that seemed to be the language of the Conservative Party in the UK was like very much the phrase ordinary people. Like Thatcher really liked to speak of the value and the tradition of like ordinary people. And this was almost like coded as people who were, were rejecting the permissive society of the 1960s. And this is also kind of behind some of the consumer mindset of the 1980s, which was Kind of in the early 80s, there is a sort of attitude of like, we're rejecting the liberalism, the liberal solutions, the youthful solutions of the 1970s, which failed so badly during the Carter administration and across the world, you know. And um, so the early 80s had this sort of like seriousness and kind of like maturity about it. And I read this article that was kind of talking about, I guess, the Thatcher era. And and it said uh, the language of ordinariness was utilized as a discursive strategy by the conservatives during the 1980s to sell the idea that shared ownership was an activity for all. This was done by linking capital ownership to the idea of everyday consumption of cars, homes and household items. This process gave the pillars of Thatcher's economic revolution the appearance of being ordinary. So being ordinary is like the social good. The way to ordinary ordinariness is consumerism and conformity, very similar to the logic in Reagan's America, right? With famous trickle down economics, right? Like if you just give money to these corporations, it's eventually going to like trickle down into the middle and lower classes. Um, and Calvin Klein was reflecting on the early 80s and he said something really funny, remarking on the minimalism and formalism of it. 
They said, we all guessed on 7th Avenue that glamour would be back and that we'd be doing glam evening dresses to show it off because the Reagans are Californians and California is pretty showy. It was a great change from the Carter administration, which is very much you sewed your own dress. The the fashion industry was trying to design more for like mature cocktail parties. You know what I mean? Like a formal event, um, kind of a sleek, classy minimalism. You think of these like... um nice like Alexi describes like body conscious things that were more in line with the exercise craze in the 1980s and the sort of like health food craze and trying to keep your body slim and svelte and so this was like very much anti-frou-frou the appeal of margaret thatcher to the ordinary people of the united kingdom like uh there's that famous quote which is like there's no such thing as society there are yes. individual men and women and there are families and like the idea that like who you should be looking out for is literally like the people under your own roof um exactly yeah yeah that that, that is that individualism is it, 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 i've always found it very ironic because consumerism was almost is almost always tied to some sort of conformity group think hive mind but it really started to kick off and emerge in this like paradoxical way, whenever there are these like rhetorics of like ordinariness in the average person and, and individuality, you know, being touted by the conservative party, right? Sort of like paradox of individual interest and consumer conformity is always interesting to me, but. Yeah. And then I guess, I guess like kind of on the sidelines in London, because Fru in the eighties really started on, um, King's Road in London. There is sort of a mitosis happening in the punk scene, kind of instigated by Vivian Westwood a little bit. The new romantics obviously started kind of emerging on King's Road and throughout London and was kind of rejecting the sort of like austere anti-fashion mentality that a lot of punks had. And Vivian Westwood had opened her famous shop Sex on King's Road with her boyfriend Malcolm McLaren, who is the manager for the Sex Pistols. They went on to manage Adam and the Ants and Bow Wow Wow, acts like that. And Vivian was dressing these acts. And because of her connections in music, her boyfriend, Malcolm McLaren, her clothing was starting to be shown on MTV and in music videos, because suddenly with the emergence of MTV, like the look and image of a band was like almost just as important or more important than the music, right? So yeah, I think like this kind of helped popularize this like new youthful, new romantic thing, which was very much like a youth striking back at this like conservative, formal, minimalist style of the late 70s and early 80s. And a lot of people rejected it at first. A lot of people said that it was like too garish. The British government said it was unpatriotic and French fashion was trying to strike back with that like epic like British French like rivalry, I guess. Um the interesting thing about the new romantics aesthetic that Vivian Westwood ushered in is it actually has a lot to do with what you just said. Like, it came about after the the Sex Pistols broke up and also after, like, uh, punk was absorbed super, super quickly into the mainstream left. So uh, at this point, Miss Westwood, she's actually already middle-aged. She's, t- like, around 40 um, and she started turning her interest to basically high culture instead of subverting the establishment in a really maximalist way. She wanted to do it in more subtle ways. And so that's how she came to her first, um, which actually this collection we're talking about was her first collection that was ever on the runway ever. 
um which was pirate oh, pirate um, yeah 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 and like I yeah I just think it's so interesting because actually it's funny because it has a connection to the last episode because it was described as an age of high highwaymen dandies and buccaneers yeah that's true and, and some of the critics and um lovers of the new romantic style really like to explore how like nostalgia based it was obviously taking cues from the sort of Belle Epoque, like Moulin Rouge type, really frou-frou stuff, and also from the 1930s, from old Hollywood, um, from cabaret, from, you know, all of these, like, insane, like, costume dress, you know? And Mm -hmm. I really think, like, that's, like, an interesting kind of form of basing a trend. I think it's similar to how we now see like TikTok trends taking from like a million different things and making sort of like collage of aesthetics and melting them into one, you know? I think it's very cool that you see the legacy of live performance still continuing with um, Vivian getting her beginnings, like dressing these bands and musicians. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, like the new romantics look became really popular with people. Boy George, right? Yeah, he was actually. Who was who was like the new romantic for the face of new romantics in music? Boy George was, and actually, he was in the original lineup of Bow Wow Wow, who was managed by Malcolm McLaren, and he left Bow Wow Wow because he said that Vivian Westwood wouldn't let him dress himself, and that's how he went solo. Damn that she! This woman had a finger in every pie. Literally, yeah, she seemed like an aesthetic, like fascist, like very fascistic about things. Like a lot of people didn't, a lot of bands that she helped, I guess she was like kind of a creative director, now that we think about, of one of, of some of these bands that mm-hmm. she's very much keeping them on a tight aesthetic leash. And she's kind of this like grand puppeteer in the background, just dressing all of these great bands. Um, yeah. You know, and then this sort of like, um, actually, the popularity of Vivian Westwood helped kind of reinvigorate British fashion in a really interesting way because British fashion was objectively flopping before the 1980s and French fashion was really uh, doing really really well there's like this newly appointed French socialist government that was like investing a lot and like supporting um, the fashion industry a lot Um, and the British government was like very much like not not interested in this but when Vivian Westwood and designers like Christian LaCroix and Godier started really popping off they decided to um join heads and like the government took interest in the industry and they proposed the establishment of like a fashion think tank and this led to the formation of the British Fashion Council which Biz I'm sure you're familiar with right yeah for sure they um still do some patronage they like well they like obviously do like grants and stuff and they'll like I don't know, sponsor someone's visa if they're a designer who's, you know, from a different country but needs a visa to work and design in the UK. This is really where things started to change and British fashion started to take hold, like, on, like, corner the international market, right? Especially with MTV. And the New Romantics started influencing larger pop stars like Madonna, obviously. The pop stars of the New Romantic age were becoming much more popular like boy george went on top of the pops and became the sensation everyone was so bamboozled and baffled by his androgyny (laughs) this sort of like a power dressing minimalist formalist style of dress was forced to kind of react a little bit and so um i think this is kind of where we start seeing formal evening frou-frou 
really take hold because the black tie dress of like they Reaganite like evening gowns and that sort of thing. They started adding all this like pemplum and flounce and tafeta and chiffon and it started becoming more extravagant. And we see kind of more on the casual side, the emergence of Princess Diana and the popularity of Laura Ashley and this very romantic style of dress, right? There's this great quote I wanted to read um, from the Vogue's The History of 20th Century Fashion. The wedding of Lady Dinah Spencer and Charles and Ronald and Nancy Reagan's inauguration to the White House provided fashion with two colorful excuses to pursue luxury and romance. London's new romantics and its new princess sported velvet bloomers, breeches, and cavalier clothes. So love was in the air, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to kind of see um, this like melding of like the British avant-garde start to kind of influence these more formal type of conservative styles, you know, that, you know, it's interesting to see how new romantics kind of might have influenced like Princess Diana and like Ronald Reagan, that sort of thing. But yeah, Princess Diana's wedding is such a great example of frou-frou. Like I'm really obsessed with them. I'll put images on the board, but like her flower girls and bridesmaids all wore these really insane puff sleeve dresses uh with tons of lace and frills and just so much layering but I don't know it's something about the fabric where the drapery has a really historical quality like it looks painterly it's giving angers (laughs) yeah it it is giving angers for sure it's giving me angies yeah um (laughs) yeah I agree with this and also why is her wedding so untoppable like it really is insane it's the only one to do it I feel Honestly, like almost every mom in the 80s like copied this wedding, you know? Yeah, the dress for sure. My grandma was um, a seamstress and she was always like, there were so many pictures of my mom and my aunts all wearing these like insane puff sleeve taffeta dresses that she was making. Because like for any yeah. occasion, she was like, I know exactly what you need. And like, yeah, I think moms and women from that time look back on it with a lot of embarrassment because it's just like, there is a element of ridiculousness to it and kind of like unchicness like everyone mm-hmm. just wanted to wear like a skinny black dress but yeah and cool. also i think princess diana's wedding dress is such a good example of the excessiveness but also the modesty mm-hmm. of some frou-frou gowns because the cut of the dress is just so modest it's like mm-hmm. it's hard to find her body in there to be honest <laughs> um yeah i guess now that you say that, Alexi, this is an interesting point because I think our generation really grew up looking back on the 80s as, like, the worst time of fashion, especially for women. Yeah, like, acid wash, big hair. There was something about it that was just really... I, I think maybe just vernacular fashion seemed distinctly bad. Like, the actual yeah. fashion that we would see, like, our family wearing in old pictures... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, it really just seemed like it's a generation that people universally look back on as having been riddled with fashion mistakes. I guess sort of, like, this, this like, the haterdom was really felt in, like, this frou-frou time. I feel like people underestimate. People really think that this defines the 80s and 80s style, but really looking at kind of the fashion history of the trends at the time, it really only took hold in the mid-80s and towards the late 80s, people were starting to really reject this look. I found so many like op-eds written by random people in the 80s 
um, late 80s in the Washington Post and New York Times that were criticizing the look as unfeminist, you know, women who were power dressing and trying to enter the workplace and being taken seriously. They felt like this was like a really um, embarrassing look. And also it just kind of uh, I think people hated that, like, the youth had taken hold of the culture and the trends again, right? Because I think women in, in the workplace, they were really enjoying the fact that, like, they didn't have to, like, conform to youthful trends now that they were, like, more mature and more, um, like, I don't know, uh, business-like. Um, and then I, I, as I was browsing these, I actually came across an essay written by Barbara Ehrenreich, who wrote the uh, book who, that we referred to in Spiritual Bimbo Core. Um, the power of happiness. What is it called? Um, Right-sided. How the relentless promotion of positive thinking has undermined America. <laughs> exactly. Right-sided. Yes. And it, I just want to read some quotes from this because I guess she she approached the critics and also Fru Fru with some skepticism. You know, I think like a lot of people were critical of Fru Fru um, in the '80s because they were used to a different paradigm of fashion, and and she interviewed a fashion historian who said that starting in the 70s, fashion was no longer monolithic and women's lives were all very different. Not all of them were at home showing off their husband's wealth, that sort of thing. And so this like diversity of trends, I think really threw people for a loop. And I want to read this passage here because I think it's relevant to the modern day in a really interesting way. Um, she writes, despite the fact that we are still numb from the hyperkinetic progression of peasant looks and pirate looks and Republican looks, <laughs> Fru-fru demands that we rouse ourselves and consider once again, does this mean anything? Is this a significant moment, one on the order of 1947, when the sudden descent of hemlines signaled the peremptory dismissal of the Western world's women from the front lines and the factories to the hurt, when padding dropped from shoulder to breast in a symbolic realignment of allegiance from production to nurturance? She said, let us put to rest, preferably forever, the tiresome and distracting notion that women, no matter what we wear, even if fashion revives the floor-length Mother Hubbard, can ever go home again. Basically, she's saying, you know, like, she's describing how all of these kind of op-eds that were apparently happening around the time about women's fashion trying to sort of, like, politicize it or, or apply, like, the sort of material analysis of it that's common among fashion history like a lot of those like discourses don't really apply. And she goes on to say, um, the real question in this age of ever accelerating retro cycles is not what to wear, but what to say about it. Let's face it, in two years, no one will remember what you were wearing in spring of 1987, or even remember what your size was. It is your point of view that counts this year. Your critical stance on such matters is the emerging bust of so-called crinies. In the end, it's not the pattern of dress that matters, but the linguistic and analytical pattern of your angle of attack. 1987 may be remembered not for a crisis in fashion or even feminism, but for a crisis in fashion discourse. Oh my god, she's such a genius. She slays, yeah. Oh, I think that is such, like, that's an aspirational way of speaking about fashion and thinking about fashion mm -hmm. for all of us. She the the whole essay is so good and really in, in like it's really inspiring for this podcast and she kind of goes on to explain how we need like a new framework to look at fashion that's not that wasn't necessarily like a fashion history perspective and she starts approaching fashion from like a psychoanalytical perspective or more like a material perspective and like just kind of realizing that there needs to be a new way of looking at it um 
But I think what's interesting, if there's anything to learn from this article, is that like something really strange starts to happen when audiovisual centric media begins to influence fashion. Like we right now have kind of like similar sentiments expressed. Like there's too many op-eds, there's too much fashion discourse, like there's a crisis in fashion discourse. And I think that is very influenced by TikTok and what Vibra I, Aaron Reich is Aaron Reich is describing seems very inter- in, intertwined with MTV, right? And I would think mm-hmm. MTV is almost interchangeable with TikTok as like audiovisual media, you know? Um, yeah, I guess it's just like things don't stop mattering just because you don't talk about them and like just because you don't write an article about them. Yes. Which is kind of, I think, a point she's making. Yeah, I think also it's interesting because this like uh, crisis in op-eds and, and fashion discourse, I feel like it's like a weird way for like literate media to like recenter society within literacy again like if you write enough words about what's happening in an audiovisual medium like you can take con- con- back control from that medium and recenter the control on literacy you know what i mean i like, like that idea yeah but that's mm. the 80s sorry that took so long <laughs> oh, i just feel so inspired by yeah, her her articulation and uh may she rest in peace because she I think she died last uh, last year. No. Yeah, she she did. I was I was gonna thinking about reaching out to her until I because we have she we've come across her for so many episodes now. But I when I tried to look at her email, I found out she had passed away, which is horrible. Yeah. Um, I think she wasn't even a fashion writer. She's just like a really good writer, and she was a MythBuster. <sighs> yeah. Yes, exactly. That's what I mean. It's just like I love how she is a serious lady. And she also talks about Fru-Fru. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she literally, she literally told everyone to STFU <laughs> about the matter. <laughs> by haters. So yeah. True. Um, yeah, well, to transition us to the next era of Fru-Fru, which is modern day, Biz kind of alluded at this earlier, but there has been a noticeable trend that we are here by reporting on of it girls wearing these 80s taffeta party dresses to go out in at night. I was recently in Los Angeles and I noticed a ton of these at this hip vintage store Rat Star in Silver Lake, which is like a trendy area. Um, and to me, it seems like this is the next evolution of the more Y2K, like 90s kinder whore slip dress outfit that a lot of girls have to go out in. So like instead of that lingerie inspired skinny look, we're transitioning to just like this huge puffy very attention getting um frou-frou look which i can co-sign i think yeah i'm gonna co-sign this too yeah also like this it's so interesting to me speaking of the old hollywood cabaret vaudevillian origins of frou-frou i think this like nightlife conviviality is a major key to the style especially um, with this consideration that you brought up, Sam, of like power dressing and how it was considered anti-feminist. But one of the tenets of power dressing was like taking up space, you know, like broad shoulders and kind of a wider silhouette. But I feel like frou-frou is literally power dressing, but for social life instead of work life. Like it's a costume for being the life of the party and taking up space and announcing your entrance. And even with the way that luxury tastes have changed like we saw more logo mania in the past decade with like gucci tracksuits and such and now we're transitioning to like a more quiet luxury old money thing i think that the core of frou-frou which is like 
tons of fabric and tons of embellishment, it'll always signify wealth, even if it's not necessarily true. Like there's a ton of fast fashion frou-frou as we'll get into. Um, mm-hmm. But that's my my thesis on frou-frou party girl dresses. Uh, there are a lot of brands that are doing this really well. One, for example, is Zephyrina. Have you guys seen them? Yes. They like to dress girls for poetry readings. <laughs> which I think is Not funny. us. Yeah, not not us. Um, Alas. But I like them. I also like the really short silhouette frou-frou dress. Um, I think that there is a very important lady involved in this conundrum by the name of Betsy Johnson. Like, I think yes. she, her styles from the 80s are just a really good example of uh, this over-the-top maximalist feminist whimsical style but then it had a bit of a punk edge and I think that's like a point of connection for a lot of these girls who might fall in the, the alt spectrum yeah. you know what's what's actually interesting about Betsy Johnson and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong listeners but I tried to look her up yesterday when I was doing research because I was trying to kind of see the history of her brand because I was like she must have been popping up so hard in the 80s right but it really didn't seem like she was very popular in the 80s. It seems like she was popular in the 2000s, like reviving the 80s and that with like Vivian Westwood punk thing. Like she's been around since the 70s as, an, as a designer. But like really when she started making a name for himself, for herself, it seems like it was in the 2000s, which is weird. Um, I think she really became a household name because she started licensing out in the 2000s at a mass scale. Uh, which is why she's someone that like you know your your next door neighbor as a kid would know about you know so um, true. to me she's also very intertwined with the era of like fashion mass media that we discussed yes um when was that like project runway america's next top model uh her yeah. shows were such runway spectacles like her whole cartwheel and split thing that it was kind of synonymous with like the ridiculousness of fashion in the 2000s yes and mm-hmm. she reminds me a lot of the movie 13 going on 30 yes because yes. i feel like she was a really cool designer to wear when you were like 12 and that movie came out and mm-hmm. also i would even younger she really appealed to people that were like seven years old which is like funny but um also i was been thinking about the movie 13 going on 30 well whilst we've been discussing and i feel like 13 going on 30 has the same attitude as like the 80s when you said sam that older people that were in their already having a career were influencing fashion like youth fashion and 13 going on 30 just always reminds me of that because she like really wants to be 30 years old like she's like that's right to be 30 that's so that's actually so true because i guess maybe maybe that movie was right in in the 80s like teenagers just wanted to be 30 which is like a wait crazy... fuck, i forgot that she's it starts in the 80s as well yeah it does it does yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah. All, all it's all coming together for me now yeah she's like 30 flirty and thriving she's yes. reading like an 80s fashion magazine like <laughs> i love that that uh that movie a lot but it got like chewed up and spit out by the tiktok trend cycle actually because jenna's iconic dress that she wears to do the thriller dance when she's on her night out became like aliexpressed yeah they should have left that one alone like they they should have have left that one by 
that is better as that is better as an unattainable object because it doesn't actually look that good on anyone so just like leave it to rest yeah it's a costume Mm -hmm. um okay what else about today's day and age i think that this dichotomy that sam mentioned of like alt versus normie frou-frou is definitely still real um for the alt side i would say that one really good example is cafe forgot which is a kind of multi maker marketplace in downtown new york they stock a lot of young designers that are derivative of the frou-frou style but in a kind of alt and diy way um so it's more just about like it kind of reminds me of like the early early frou-frou that we were talking about with like the invention of the sewing machine it gives kind of like tattered distress ruffles and like it's like haphazard embellishments well let's just say you know we're not even talking about cafe forgot we're really talking about the outsourced cafe forgot aesthetic which you can find on depop on tiktok with no actual connection to the business (laughs) yes this is true that was really (laughs) legalese i like that yeah the legal disclaimer Mm -hmm. um (laughs) yeah they're so hard to pin down because there's so many moving parts to it like they really are just a marketplace but fashion marketplaces as we know are the core of fashion history in a sense like you know in the 60s the um like mary kwan's like store yeah like Lib- liberty yeah liberty like uh, biba was also a thing and yeah anyway sure. opening ceremony will also go down in history opening ceremony had a lot of fruit fruit clothes tbh um, mm-hmm. i know i guess their difference was that they always did them in like neon or something yeah that was definitely their vibe um on the more normie side of things, you may have observed the brand Laura Ashley, who was like central to the conservative frou-frou movement of the 80s, has experienced something like a revival with collaborations with Urban Outfitters, Batsheva, Lucky Brand was just announced like two days ago, as well as Ooh. more traditional brands like Barber, which is like a heritage. Barber's British, right? Yeah. Um. Yeah. And Laura Ashley is definitely cashing in on millennial suburban childhood nostalgia for the clothes that we once found ridiculous um so the designer Batshefa Hay who's definitely like one of the frou-frou leaders of our time mm-hmm. who founded the eponymous brand Batsheva which is known for having these like puff sleeve party dresses worn by the likes of Lena Dunham and many other it girls <laughs> She said um, in an interview about the collaboration that Laura Ashley was my first fashion memory. I wore it all throughout childhood. I had the bed sheets and everything. When I started designing, it was inspired by my Laura Ashley memories. I actually, I have a dress from the Laura Ashley Urban Outfitters collaboration. I was going to buy one on Depop like a week ago. I think that it's really cute. What if it's the same one? Wait, what is it? Is it blue? Is it the blue swan one? Perhaps child <laughs> i know i wore it to the ballet yeah. in new orleans and it was so elegant mm-hmm. yeah but Shabba, i've always been kind of interested in as well but for some reason they're a little bit too like the urban outfitters ones were i think really marketed to like young women and so the hemlines were pretty short and they were a bit more snatched mm-hmm. um but Batsheva is like bordering on knee length a lot of the times and like actual prairie skirt levels yeah. So I'm just like, I feel like this might look a little bit costumey on me, but I still also like her swag. Oh, I was just gonna say Batsheva was like the 
original when we're talking about fashion op-eds there was a wave of fashion op-eds in like the late 20 mid late 2010s which was like what is prairie core like urban girl on the prairie and she mm-hmm. was definitely implicated in that yeah so like yeah. it's a vestige of like williamsburg hipster mm-hmm. yeah this is very like because i think also um rodarte did a pretty prominent coll- collection this season fall winter 2023 which i saw a lot of people praising um it was it was frou-frou it was just like goth frou-frou which is weird because like it wasn't new romantic frou-frou it was just like goth or actually prince diana frou-frou and it reminded me of that book miss nelson is missing i don't know if anyone remembers that book but it was very that it was like this wit like frou-frou witch type thing mm, um, i don't remember that but sounds good yeah but i feel like rodarte was very uh central to prairie core in the 2010s um mm. and they're kind of making a little bit of them making a comeback right now doing something kind of fruity seems very historical to me it seems like very like salmon returning home to their place of birth i didn't i don't know that they did that to die i, th- I know I've, I've made that comparison before but i didn't know salmon returned home to their place of birth to die so um, um we'll cut that out i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i isn't it I thought they I think they do it for like several reasons, right? Yeah, it's like going I, home. I think. For the holidays. Oh, you know who we should talk about? Connor Ives. Mm. Like Connor Ives is not necessarily frou-frou, but really loves to patchwork together beautiful uh lavish silks and such. And I don't know, there's something about it that has that disheveled yet hyper feminine look to his work i think his is so tailored though like i don't know he doesn't give frou-frou to me did you guys um keep up with the miss sohi paris debut do you guys know who that is uh potentially keep going look her up um she's this korean designer sohi park that had her debut oh yes i did i did see that yeah yeah and it was very like glamazon Almost kind of like draggy, but it really did give like uh old couture costumes. Uh she had this really viral like tulip dress. Is that what it was? Mm. You know, like this with these huge um bulbous layers of taffeta that was very heavily editorialized. Um, but also these looks where it's like kind of Venus coming out of a shell, lots of ruffles and dramatic, like off the shoulder moments and long draped draped sleeves and trains and such but also maybe she's a bit too body conscious too um but i think she's one to watch in terms of contemporary frou-frou history <laughs> yeah it was th- this is one of the shows that i saw that i i was very much like um this is this is black tie frou-frou like this Definitely. is very black tie frou-frou for me exactly what it is and Another black tie frou-frou thing, I feel like gloves are so in. Like, I'm seeing more girls wearing that silhouette that's, like, mini dress and gloves to go out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah, no, like, pup sleeves are, are really, because they, their return during, like, cottagecore um, was more Laura Ashley-esque. But this, like, black tie frou-frou, like, puff sleeve is giving very much, like, Reagan dinner party type thing. Like, that seems to be the vibe right now. Mm-hmm. Um like Ronald Reagan dinner party. He's the Reagans hosted a lot of dinner parties, I guess, because that's like all anyone talked about in the 80s was like how influential their dinner parties were. But um Yeah, I think it was the consumerist vibe was that 
a lot of people were into entertaining because that's also when like Martha Stewart had her come up. I just keep thinking about like them eating jelly beans. Because <laughs> you love like, jelly what beans. Was the, what was the food yeah, in the what 80s were they then? eating? I think like a beef Wellington is not the thing that's like we need to go in loaf of bread. <laughs> we need to go. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay, etc. We need to go onto the New York Public Library like restaurant dinner menu archives oh, and find out what they there. were eating back then. We love it there. Oh yes, um, I want to go there so much. You know what I was actually thinking about is like di- this is kind of a tangent, but dining in the eighties, like fine dining, was is so like steakhousey and like nowadays. Like, the millennial version of fine dining is so starkly different. Like, I feel like when you go out to yeah. eat with people's parents and they're like, let's just go to, like, a steakhouse. Like, that's what my parents do. They're like, let's go to, like, a steakhouse. Like, they like going to steakhouses mm. owned by, like, football players and stuff, you know? It's really fun. <laughs> that just feels very 80s Reagan, you know? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Steakhouses, I, they are important. They're I so important. Come back. They should. What? They've never left in my heart. Yeah, me neither, but people, like... When you think about fine dining now, to me, it's epitomized by the fact that 11 Madison Park, like the fancy restaurant in New York, is like completely plant based. Yeah, that um, is a crazy thing. Or yeah, it's like seven course meals of like tiny little sandwiches and like foam and flowers, you know? Yeah, I think I the mean, 80s was just all about excess. So, like, when you went to a nice restaurant, you wanted like a big plate of food. But also, that's like the meme of um, Dorcia in. Um, American Psycho, like this restaurant that you can't get a reservation at, but you never actually really see the food there. But now there's this app called Dorcia where you like can get reservations to really uh, hard to reserve restaurants. And it's kind of funny that they actually called it that. But like to get into it, you have to like write a paragraph about like your most meaningful dining experience. It's all really annoying. What? Um, yeah. I would write about a steakhouse. Mm-hmm. That's so... good. Yeah, I think I actually was reflecting on this and something I had been writing about how, you know, the minimalism was very popular for the elite in the 80s. But looking back, 80s minimalism seems really maximalist still. There's just something about it that is still so over the top and it's very maximalist compared to like the millennial minimalism of the 2010s or even like 90s minimalism Mm -hmm. so i guess that's the difference yes this is important to note because i think when i say minimalism i I say minimalism in comparison to frou-frou right because 80s minimalism is more like i guess we would think like yves saint laurent like very construction and like tailoring based you know there wasn't a lot of like bells and whistles to the outfits it was just very much about like the shape of it but adding those bells and whistles was like the maximalist component that kind of shifted away from the quote unquote minimalism. But you're right that in the nineties, like minimalism was literally just like a piece of fabric, like wrapped around you um, and like some earrings or something, you know? Yeah. Like, um, I also want to talk about two other contemporary frou-frou brands that are both kind of Chinese influenced. So one of them is Shu Shu Tong. Which even the name has like a bit of a frou-frou sound mm-hmm. to it. Um, mm-hmm. But they're a women's wear label based out of Shanghai. That's the joint design project of these London College of Fashion graduates. Um, it started in 2014. And I mean, they're one of my favorite designers ever. Like I have a lot of their stuff, but it is 
kind of maybe like dark frou-frou um and also they play with formal wear notions a lot of their stuff is made in like a dark gray like that office gray that's Mm. so trendy now um but they're like a big puff sleeve big bow giant collar like voluminous silhouette um brand that is popping up more and more on celebrities in the red carpet and the other one is sandy liang who i think she went to the new school or parsons um and she's also of chinese heritage and she had this big like lunar new year party recently slash show um but a lot of her stuff is really similarly like cheeky and feminine and big silhouette uh yeah so yeah i have to wonder what like the chinese impact there are a lot of chinese brands that are um doing this thing right now which i really like yeah i would love to learn more sandy liang is a really interesting designer because for those of us old heads many may remember that she first achieved notoriety for creating these zip-up sherpa slash fleece jackets mm-hmm. that were very like girly gorp girly gorp core but now i would say she's having a a level of relevance in her brand that is unprecedented i see people talking about her on tiktok a lot um her most recent collection with the bows adorning the hair went kind of soft viral. And I also saw her ballet flats in the Heaven store yesterday. Um, yeah, it's really, I totally forgot about her origins. Ever since she leaned into this more feminine aesthetic, she's actually become a lot more popular uh, outside of like LES. Yeah, because before it was a little bit like GQ reader style, those um like more cargos. She had a Target collaboration, um, like hoodies and fleeces. She also had a Vans collaboration. I remember there being like, yeah, a lot more sportswear inspired stuff and kind of like hoodie and sweatpants sets. Yeah. I guess maybe that's how she had her come up and then she was like, no, I'm gonna start making something else. Yeah, she always had like a major feminine twist to everything she was putting out, but it has increased by a tenfold maybe it's also like a there is a certain y2k childishness to her early stuff she made these flower like rings and necklaces that were made of like resin that just look like a kind of like a poly pocket flower yeah and it just feels like her design has kind of evolved past that uh it definitely was really 90s yeah she also has a Salomon collaboration on the way, allegedly, which is interesting, mm, returning back to her sporty origins. Yeah, the bucket hat. Yeah, she really switched up on them, but I like it. Yeah, there are also a couple of brands that, I feel like we're just talking about all the brands that like Old Loser in Brooklyn wears. Oh, damn. Simone Rocha. Yeah, Simone Rocha, Kika Vargas, that dress has gone super viral. Um. The more normy side of things that I'd like to discuss, it almost kind of is like Bama Rush style or just like more, um, yeah, what was the school that, oh, it was Baylor that their Rush outfits went super viral. It was like a lot of these types of frou-frou dresses that everyone was really confused about, but it's also because like it's a pretty religious and modern school, not modern, um, modest. 
Yeah, Baylor is um very famous Texas school. Big on the rush, big on sororities. Um, big on the Vera Bradley. Yeah, their rush was so different. Like the outfits were really interesting to people on TikTok because they weren't that kind of like normal school spirit style. It was like a lot of these like kind of prairie dresses, but like a glitter puff sleeve dress with like 10 layers of tulle just to like go hang out. I think everyone was really freaked out by it or like a sweater with a bunch of hearts on it. Um, Definitely a lot of Love Shack fancy. Yeah, the Love Shack fancy chokehold is huge here. And I think also just Texas is differentiates itself from the rest of the South by being incredibly more crass than the rest of the South, mm-hmm. just in every possible way. So it like really didn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, and, and I say that with so much affection. Big hair, big dress. We love to see it. Um, yeah. So that's something that I think is cool is that, you know, this isn't, you know, there's the alt cafe for God side, but then there's also the Baylor Rush um, modest Christian girl side. Love Shack Fancy for Love and Lemons, I think also is a good example. Um, Vanessa Mooney's another brand. I almost want to say Zimmerman, but I feel like Zimmerman is like the mommy version. Um, Selkie, which we talked about in our last episode, is like a, I don't know, like a historical frou-frou almost. Yeah, this is like the modern equivalent to the Laura Ashley thing, right? Because the whole, because I think right now frou-frou seems like Chinese and then also very American. And in the past, like the British, like aristocracy really dominated the more normie frou-frou, um, which does seem like a sorority vibe. Like I think Diana has like a sorority girl vibe to me a little bit. Like she seems like she loves her girlfriends and like loves, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, just all about like female friendship or something. Yeah, um, she she like before she married Charles, she was living in a little flat with a few of her friends in West London. Oh, she was like, like a preschool teacher. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, there is something. Oh, yeah, there's something very like teacher esque about this style in in an interesting way. I also did, you know, just want to note because I feel like we've never said it on the podcast, and it's because it's probably so obvious. But yeah, ribbons are really. <laughs> you girls love those things. Ribbons are going crazy. It's giving like um girl with the green ribbon. Have y'all ever heard of that book? Yeah, because those those damn coquettes love that book. They're like they do. She's, she's me. She's literally me. Yeah, if I take <laughs> off my ribbon, my head will fall off. Yeah. To be yeah. honest though, I did have an experience the other day where um you guys know those massive scrunchies, like the ones that are designed to have like a ton and ton and ton of fabric on them. Oh, yes, I lost one of those in the ocean a few years ago. I have like a multicolored collection of those, and I pull my hair back. Like, well, giant. Those are, those, are, those are really frou frou. First of all, second of all, I encountered one like on the ground of an office building. It's literally the one and, that got washed away from me, probably. Yeah, it, <laughs> it felt like I was stumbling upon like a murder scene or something because. <laughs> It it felt like yeah, seeing the green ribbon ribbon come off someone's neck and like their head falls off. I don't know. It's such a meaningful accessory. It is. It is. It really changes an outfit. But I fear sometimes I look when I wear it because I wear those pretty often, especially because mm-hmm. I haven't gotten a haircut in a while. So I've been wearing my hair back more, and I wear that to kind of. It makes me feel like because I have this big curly hair, and like whenever I put my hair back, I feel kind of like naked, and so I put this giant ruffly thing on my yeah, head because. Yeah just makes me feel normal and but it does give like like mexican restaurant waitress a little bit you know what i mean 
Like, have you ever oh. seen those waitresses? I've been I've been a Mexican restaurant wait- waitress, so I didn't know for, for fact. Um, but. Yes, it just reminds me of the flamenco flower that we spotted many, many in many collections over the past few seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fabric flowers and the ruffles and yeah, this is also becoming another like going out uniform thing, the like ruffled two-piece set. I think the brand Fancy Club was the first to do it, but then there are these other derivative ones. It doesn't it's too slutty to be frou-frou to me. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Can you link it yeah. in the chat? Because I'm actually really curious. Yeah. Um, I'll link you the website of this one brand that does it. Um okay. Yes, okay, this fancy club. Yes, it has like the the wavy tendrils that fly off the body, very post blue marines y2k revival yes i think they were the first brand to kind of pick up on that Um, i agree it reminds me a lot of some things that beyonce wore in the 2000s yes Mm. i I guess yeah versace also was making like the viral versace um jennifer lopez dress has that similar tenderly effect in my opinion i like it i think it is very beautiful but i wish that I would like to see it in almost like a, a darker, a dark frou frou sense. Yeah, like I would like a sinister iteration of these fabric tentacles. It gives a man of war jellyfish. Yes, um, yes, yes, beautiful. Yeah, they're a bit too tenderly. I want them to be bigger. Like it's also long, but I want some um, horizontal dimension frou frou style. Yeah, because this is really coming back to my half baked theory that a lot of frou frou style is like off putting because it's like the the clothing equivalent of like birthday makeup but this is still like quite skimpy like you said and so mm-hmm. i think most men would still be like ooga male gaze fru fru all of that stuff is also so transparent i'm just like are you guys i don't know i can't imagine paying like 400 dollars for a dress that is completely transparent i feel like that... i would rip it really easily like with my nail or like a ring or something yeah. That, like, really gives a perversion of 80s frou-frou to me, because obviously we saw the rise of, like, the see-through dress in the 90s, a la Kate Moss. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the nice thing about frou-frou is that it's like, has a protective opaqueness. It's so opaque. You're, like, I feel like you don't even need to wear a bra, because it's just... Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, like, a very... It's, like, a suit of armor or something. It's, like, a huge... And it's also very, like, giving, like, social distancing to me or something. Like, no one can stand <laughs> super close to you or something, you know? Like, I yeah, don't know. That's actually really true. I also, I wrote this, like, uh, piece for Spike magazine a while ago, which was about digital fashion. And I looked at the digital fashion that was created by the brand Carolina Herrera, who has a lot of frou-frou outputs. But, like, it was just this really weird digital dresses that she made that were modeled by, like, Charlie XCX and Kim Petras that featured, like, the giant frou-frou bows. But, like, my point here is that Carolina Herrera is really famous for dressing a lot of first ladies, and there's like something there about like the protective energy of opaque frou frou, and it being worn by like Michelle Obama. Yeah, like the Secret Service like made them put it on because it's, yeah, like, you know what I mean. They could wear like a bulletproof vest under it, you know. Yeah, there's yeah, a hidden camera so inside the frou frou bow. Um. Yeah. Okay, is there anything else you guys wanted to cover? Because I've been tracking time and we've been recording for an hour 30 plus now. Yeah, Fav- shout out to friend of the pod, um, we- Fabian Kisuhas, um, who is a really talented designer, very frou-frou in our opinion, um, 
who has been a listener since day one. She's so talented. Um, this episode can be thought of as promotion of her work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll link her um, in the description, but she's got really cool frou-frou designs that... Um, her favorite up-and-coming frou-frou designer, for sure. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, she's amazing. Her work is really beautiful. It has a lot of intricate, unexpected, I guess... Uh, just unexpected arrangements of frufu elements that are really beautiful yeah it feels so historic and like very um like virginal can can a little bit you know like if can yeah. can if moulin rouge dancers were virgins like this is what they would be wearing you know yeah chloe Sevigny wore um some of fabian's designs for her bachelorette party oh i forgot yeah, yeah. i thought it was also her wedding dress I don't know. She had that kind of vague wedding multi-event. Yeah, she's like Trisha yeah. Paytas. She she had like five different wedding dresses. Yeah. Um, Bob is very free fruit as well to have like five different wedding dresses. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Fru Fruettes, for listening to this week's episode. Yeah. Let us know how you're continuing the legacy of Fru Fru in your daily life. Like, are you gonna? practice can-can dancing or are you gonna buy a taffeta party dress or just like make a scene at a party mm-hmm. let us know are you gonna have a reaganite dinner party yes mm. you really are you gonna about what you're well doing <laughs> stay for first stay new romantic we love romance we love love this is all very romantic as a style um and i know valentine's day has already passed but i'm sure many of you guys have anniversaries or dates or weddings or something coming up and we encourage you to dress frou-frou for those events you know anything to do with love and romance this is like a very um appropriate style for those those occasions yeah, um feels pretty anti-nihilist yeah totally it's 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 like paris is burning let's dance yeah, it's like ray of sunshine let's girl dance. yeah <laughs> why are we so old? it's literally been so continuous it's it's obviously meaning something. It is though. Um Okay. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.